Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Sammy, who do we have the pleasure of talking to today? Hey, Monica. We are so excited to have Josh Bellingham on our podcast today. Welcome, Josh. Josh holds a bachelor's degree in kinesiology and a master's degree in physiotherapy from the University of Manitoba. Josh began his career with a focus on exercise and sports performance, but over the years has developed a passion for understanding and managing complex pain. Josh has completed a variety of courses in pain management through Pain BC and regularly participates in their weekly clinical discussions. In addition to working full-time in private practice, Josh is also active on his website, chronicpainphysio.ca, as well as Instagram, to advocate for and support people living with chronic pain. When he's not in the clinic or working on content for Chronic Pain Physio, you'll find him hiking in the mountains of beautiful British Columbia. Welcome, Josh. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm very excited to be chatting with you today. So, Josh, tell us, what are you currently working on? Currently working on, yeah. I'm always trying to use my free time to learn and do as much as I can. And lately, that has been working on a potential course offering coming up sometime this year that I'm trying to put together to mobilize a little bit of pain education more in some areas. I think we could probably fill some knowledge gaps. Excellent. And I know in our discussions with you earlier, you seemed really passionate about just getting this message out there to people in chronic pain. It seems like there's just not enough good resources out there for people. So it sounds like a really cool project that you're working on. What sorts of resources are available on your website for people in chronic pain? What sorts of things can they check out there? Yeah, my website has been up for just a little while now. And so I've got a couple of things on there already. A book list that I put together that people can check out if they're interested in learning about some of those resources, like you said, that are out there. There's some really fantastic books that can be helpful for learning and and managing pain. And then I put a flare up action plan on my website as well, which is a tool that if you've got a plan for for dealing with pain when it's coming up and being able to recognize the warning signs of a flare up coming, that can really help to avoid those flare ups from happening in the first place. And then sometimes it's going to be inevitable and you can't avoid them. So there's also a portion of the plan to give yourself some premeditated tips so you don't have to be thinking about all that stuff when you're in the thick of it and just an easy checklist to follow to take care of yourself. That's an awesome resource. How did you get into chronic pain work? Yeah, for a long time, I came out of school and I have athletic background for myself, went into exercise education first and then rehab after that with physiotherapy and always assuming that the most logical thing would just to be continuing working in sports. So I was doing more athletic or general rehab for acute injuries. And I was really finding that one of my favorite parts of the job was just the interacting with people. And when it comes to persistent pain, that is, I think, where that connection becomes even more important. And before I even mm. knew as much as I knew about pain, I think I could really feel the importance of that connection with those clients that I had. And that just pivoted my interest. And I started going down that path of learning what I could about chronic pain and persistent pain. And you start to see all these ways that human connection actually comes to support not just people in pain, but everybody as well. And I was like, oh, that's so great because that's what I love the most about doing this. So it lined up really well for who I am and how I like to be as a clinician. That's awesome. I'm curious about this connection and relationship building that you're describing with your pain clients. How do you do things differently in your rapport building, communication, relationship building? Is there any difference in how you approach them versus somebody coming in with an acute injury? Yeah. One thing that I tend to do, I think a little bit differently than some other physios is my subjective history is usually quite a bit longer than I think a lot of my my colleagues. And especially if I start to get some of those flags of maybe there's some central sensitization or, or something going on here, because you start to get into that whole world of 
what are all the contextual factors that are flaring this person up or generating this pain that they're having. So once that door is open, now I want to start knowing more about their life and what's led them to here. And that involves a lot of asking questions about their own understanding of pain and their questions about their own understanding of their diagnosis. And then once I start doing that, it always surprises me how little information people have, whether it's never been given to them or maybe they did get it, but they were in a really acute situation and they didn't absorb any of that information. But as you start getting them on that train, they usually have all these questions and everything. Just being able to answer questions around uncertainty that they've had for days or months or weeks or years and to be like, oh, I actually can answer that question for you. That brings so much trust and especially who people who a lot of the times don't have a ton of trust with the people who are helping them, like that can just be huge. And do you do anything different to Sammy's point when you talk about pain science with someone who's coming in for an acute injury versus someone who's coming in with chronic pain? A lot of times it's, I want to give a little context and say that often it seemed like you do traditional PT for anyone who's acute and then suddenly there's this bucket where we throw people into chronic pain or persistent pain management and these people get the pain science program. It sounds like you're advocating more so for anyone who's got pain to learn about it. So I'm curious what that looks like in your actual practice. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, just like you said, I think it's a very underutilized thing. And as a lot of things are in healthcare, we currently use it in a very reactive way, pain education. And what I've been finding is one of the hardest things to get through when you have those people who are in the persistent pain vortex, if you will, or like vicious cycle that can get created there. Yeah. Challenging those beliefs, especially when you're deep in that is one of the hardest things to do, right? So anytime there's somebody who's coming in with acute pain, that's an opportunity to ingrain those positive beliefs and honest and, and real beliefs about what pain is when they're most likely to be very receptive to that. So there's a lot of prevention and protection you can give to people if you're coming in and they got a sprained ankle and you're teaching them about hypersensitivity, maybe not using words like hyperalgesia and allodynia and stuff, but you can start talking about how pain is used as protection. And that feeling when you put your foot down is just a, a message telling you to lift your foot up because it hurts. And pain is a behavior change thing, but not a tissue thing. So there's a lot of those baseline beliefs that you can really start injecting into absolutely everybody that you come across and should they get themselves into a situation later where they're maybe having something that's persisting and sticking around and they've already got that understanding of why am I still getting this warning sign why am I still getting this protection people are telling me things are healed it's a lot easier to approach those more challenging concepts later if they already are primed with that information Rather than thinking, nobody's figured out what's wrong with my tissues, my tissues hurt, we don't know where it's coming from, all of the findings have been negative, mm -hmm. what do I do now? It's essentially a very different conversation. So you're advocating for preventative pain science. Yes, I think that is the best place to use it. It's easier for everybody. <laughs> and then hopefully there's less need for the <laughs> chronic pain science later on. Absolutely. It's a protective effect as people navigate the healthcare system for many visits in different contexts after they see you, they're going to have this different idea in their mind about what pain means and what pain mm -hmm. is. And I think that's so protective against all of the nocebo that we have in our healthcare system. So that's a really awesome paradigm shift and different way of thinking about even acute injury. Yeah, there's an opportunity every time, I think. And then the nuance that you build up after a little while is figuring out how far you want to go into that conversation with people who the nitty gritty details of pain science are not going to be that relevant to somebody who's, say, sprained an ankle or something like that. But you still might start to approach that subject a little. And it's really interesting to see how many people are just absolutely engaged and they want you to keep telling them about more and more and they want to learn about all that stuff so there's some people who i've had come in and i've given them just little nuggets to plant the seed of that belief and they've asked me what does that mean in this situation what does that mean in that situation i have an auntie who has arthritis and she's been in pain for 40 years is that actually her knee joint or is that 
something else. And people are curious and they want to know this information. And I don't think traditionally our healthcare system gives people enough credit for how much they're willing and how much they're able to learn. So as someone who's very passionate about chronic pain, I'm curious what your tips would be for other physios or in the States, physical therapists out there who are maybe integrating this. Let's assume that these people have already taken some type of pain science core. What could they do or what have been some of your pearls from all this time that you've spent talking about pain? Yeah, I think whenever I have clinicians who are just getting into this, sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming. And, and I went through this when I was first starting to get really good at how I communicate with people is you can just really over blab about all these different things. And there's so many corridors you can go down of rabbit holes of information and stuff. So I always just recommend to people to just get a few metaphors about pain and know them really well. And those can have, in the fewest words, the biggest impact and when we take these concepts and we apply them to very easy to understand real world situations, that can really help to ingrain that knowledge translation too. And you can get people to absorb that information much easier as well. So I can give you some of those. Please. <laughs> yes, I'm about to ask. <laughs> so like some of my favorite ones is, and a really good one for the acute clients too, is talking about pain relating to brain freezes. I think almost everybody has had a brain freeze, so it's very easy to understand. And you just start eating a popsicle and then your body temperature is going to dip really quickly because you're putting this cold thing in your mouth over and over. And then your head starts to hurt a whole bunch. And there's no tissue damage there. And I think we can all understand that eating a popsicle isn't hurting our tissues or hurting our brain. But it's that communication of your brain is feeling some danger from the mm -hmm. information of your temperature dropping quickly. So it wants you to take the cold thing out of your mouth for a little while, and then you get pain. So you stop eating the popsicle, a little bit of time goes by, pain goes away, temperature comes back up, and then you're okay. So it's a protection mechanism, completely unrelated to tissues whatsoever. I like that one. Yeah, I get a lot of aha moments in that one, because it's, it's one of those concepts where it's very obvious that there's no tissue involvement at all from a brain freeze, right? Yeah. And a brain freeze is a very non-threatening kind of associated with fun times too. So it's not, totally this, not this experience that people have where they're very distressed about it. You have a brain freeze and you're like, ha ha ha, I had a brain freeze. I'm eating this yeah. popsicle. It's not this scary experience for most people. Yeah. I always picture like having a rocket pop on a beach whenever I'm telling that thing. And it's totally. like this very <laughs> it's safe fun. situation of pain, yeah. right? Yeah. That's awesome. Do you have any other great metaphors that you like to use? Yeah, there's some good ones for different situations. And I like to use to talk about sensitivity and especially central sensitization when people have these really strong responses to things that they shouldn't. There's this metaphor called the tulip and the cactus. So if you're going out in the desert and you brush up against a cactus and one of the needles pricks you, you get this cut and then that turns into some persistent pain. It was really worrying in the moment and you weren't sure you were kind of alone. You wanted to get back and get somebody to look at it and make sure it's unaffected. Maybe it was a bit of a traumatic experience, which is something that can make it more likely to be persistent pain. You cut yourself on this cactus, right? It all heals up, but this pain doesn't go away. And the longer pain persists, the lower that threshold for what it finds is enough information of danger to cause you pain because it's going to get more and more protective the longer that pain sticks around. So maybe a year later, you're in the garden and you brush up against a tulip on that same spot on your arm. Even though a tulip's not going to hurt you, your brain is going to make memories of that situation with the cactus. And a tulip is another plant that sticks out of the ground. And the more sensitized you get, the less specific and the less powerful that information needs to be to get that pain response. So mm. a year later, what would have taken a cactus and an actual cut in the moment to actually cause some pain, it might be so protective now that even brushing up against almost any plant is enough of a similar situation to create that same increase in pain response. Hmm. Excellent. So you're already teaching them that we can start to desensitize you, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You're planting that seed, not to make a pun, but yeah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> <So good. laughs> 
Yeah, that's an awesome metaphor. I really like that. Anything else, Josh? Any other metaphors? Yeah, I think there's one other really good one that I like because it really starts to talk about the, the sensitizing and touch can be hypersensitive and whatever. But if you want to talk about the ways that protection can come up in movement and tightening muscles and things like that, you can use the tickling metaphor. So if you have a baby and you're going to go tickle a baby, what you'll usually do is you'll get your hands like that spider formation and you'll say, I'm going to tickle you. And then you come in and that baby's already going to start smiling. A baby's already going to start tucking its arms in to, to protect itself from the tickling or whatever. And it's the same with pain responses, right? Especially the more sensitive you get, that response comes on sooner. So the idea is that this baby or this child is reacting to seeing the hands coming in, hearing the sounds of the parent saying they're going to tickle them in that higher pitch voice. And the body is already responding in a protecting way, tucking in the arms. The baby's getting ready for what's going to happen, but it hasn't actually started tickling yet. So pain works in the same way. If you're really sensitive, you can start to get this protective response just from being in environments or situations where your body is starting to feel like there's danger around. So that could even be at a doctor's office waiting for an exit result. You might feel very nervous, you might feel very scared. You might start to get things tightening up. Maybe you got in a car accident and you're driving down the same street where that accident happens. That might be a very stressful situation. You might start to get tightness. The nice thing with this metaphor is it, it introduces muscle tightness and, and more of the physical responses to pain as part of that communication. But it's a great time to also introduce that with this all being communication to you about protection, the way to show your body safety is through movement, right? It's communicating using your muscles and your tissues and your body to show you that it feels like it's in danger. So movement is how we actually reinforce that safety. Because if you're moving freely in spite of some of those protective responses, that is going to reinforce to your brain that, okay, I'm throwing up the protection wall here, but we're going through it and nothing bad is happening. So maybe next time I go down that street where that car accident happened, I'm going to be a little less overwhelmed by that situation, a little less afraid, feel a little safer. It's funny you use this metaphor. It's one that I actually have used in a slightly different context is the tickling metaphor. Monica and I are both pelvic PTs. And so we see people who have pain with sex, for example. Mm -hmm. And I've had plenty of people come in with this chronic pain during sex. And they say, it's so hard because anytime that my partner touches me, I have this pain and it brings on this response I can't even control in my body. And I, I love to use the example of you can't tickle yourself right? It's impossible to tickle yourself. You can't like elicit that response. And so your body has this guarding response when somebody else is doing something to you. And so I, I like to introduce that as a way to talk about trying to first be comfortable with your own touch and then gradually introduce the touch of a partner as a graded exposure kind of a thing. Because I think that they see the two things as being completely equal. Yeah. If I'm applying the same mm -hmm. pressure and my partner's applying the same pressure, why does it feel so different? And mm -hmm. I think that can also help them realize, oh, yeah, I guess I can't tickle myself. It's different when I'm controlling it. My body is anticipating what I'm doing versus someone who else is maybe this X factor. So that's one that I'll, I'll use in pelvic health a lot. But it's such a great metaphor all around. And I really like the spin that you had on it. So now I'm like, oh, I could use tickling as like a metaphor for so many things. This is great. <laughs> I love it. I've actually not heard of the tickling metaphor before. So I'm definitely going to steal that one. And when you were talking about the person driving down the street, maybe that's where they had the accident, I thought of stress. Mm -hmm. And I think the other metaphor that has really served me is explaining stress responses to people and trying to close out stress responses. And we're all on computers now. So I'm like, every time you have stress, it's like opening a new tab in your browser. And usually we open up a ton of tabs. We spend all day trying to close other people's tabs for work and their stresses. And then at the end of the day, we wonder why our computers crash. So we need mm -hmm. to start closing out our browsers and having that conversation with them it makes sense. It's okay. I get it. Uh -huh, yes, I, I need to close out my own tabs. And then we can talk about the stress response. And you also had a post recently, this is getting me thinking about the onion ring model of pain, which I think starts speaking to these other components of pain beyond just sensitivity. So could you explain what that 
pain model is and how that influences your practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think also that Google tabs metaphor that you use, like you told me that for the first time just the other week, and I thought that was the greatest example ever. So I'm definitely stealing that one from you. <laughs> Good. We've um, had a trade-off. Yeah, the there we go. <laughs> but yeah, the, the onion one that you mentioned is, I think it's originally from the 70s or the 80s or something. This guy named Losler, I believe is his name. And he presented talking about pain as an onion in that the deeper you get through the layers is all the things that you don't see that are still contributing to having pain. And then the closer you get to the top of the layer is how that presentation is going to be. So it serves two purposes. And one is getting a deeper understanding of what can be generating pain for people. And then two is, I think, at least how I interpret it, reinforcing the importance of things like those really in-depth subjective histories that unless you can peel back some of those layers with people, you're not going to really understand all the drivers. So for example, some of those things like the center of the onion would basically be nociceptive stimulus and pain stimulus, right? And then you go a little bit further out from that and it's what are their attitudes, what are their beliefs about pain? And that is going to be either something that drives or inhibits a pain response. A little further than that, how is it affecting their life? Have they not gone to work in six weeks? Are they financially suffering because of this pain? That's going to influence how much or little of a pain response they get. What are their behaviors? Do they have very passive coping skills? Is it only rest, avoid social situations, shame, movement avoidance, things like that? Or is it active coping skills, like find new ways to keep my social circles up, do the little bit of movement that I can, seek support when I need it. So depending on how they're coping, that's another layer that is going to influence more or less pain. And usually what we start to see is the presentation in social environments. So we'll see the physical signs, we'll see how they interact with people. Maybe they're very optimistic. Maybe they're very short because they're in pain. All those layers are going to come out as what you're presented with right in front of you with that person. And if we just try and give somebody interventions based on what we're seeing in this surface environment, and we don't dig down into those layers, we're not going to be understanding the whole story of what's going on for them and missing out on some really important aspects of care. That is amazing. I feel like that is so validating to hear because we've talked about some of those things, spend longer on your history, ask questions, talk about pain beliefs. But I am surprised when you talk about the outside of the onion being how the person shows up in their evaluation. I never thought of it that mm -hmm. way. Like the way they're showing up right now is because of all these other things. And by doing a great subjective, maybe I can cut through some of the rabbit holes. Because I think sometimes we chase rabbit holes yeah. when we work with chronic pain. And that's what's so frustrating is we're over here trying to do this intervention. But then later you find out that actually their cousin has pain and mm -hmm. has never been able to walk again. And you realize, oh my gosh, I've been trying to tell them to exercise, but they have this lived experience of people in their life not being able to exercise or exercise making it worse. So that's so great to hear you explain all of it that way and give us again permission to spend more time talking as PTs, yeah. which sometimes feels so taboo. As a provider who also takes a longer history, I'm sometimes like, what am I doing? Am I trying to play psychologist? And it is part of what we do, Yeah. right? This is all within our scope, but it wasn't the focus um, of my schooling and of Same. my education. So sometimes it feels like I'm breaking with tradition. Totally. And, and I think it's a really hard thing, especially for newer clinicians as well. Well, and it can be a really hard thing for people who have been doing this a certain way for a long time too, because like you, I didn't have a huge emphasis on the subjective history. The subjective history was most of the time a tool to get some information to guide your objective and to rule out red flags. That was mainly how the subjective history is used. And it wasn't presented as this key clinical tool for getting to the bottom of a lot of people's complex issues. 
And there's one thing I heard on a podcast by David Pope, who is a physio in the UK, I believe. And it's always stuck with me. And they were talking about the importance of subjective histories and stuff too. And he mentioned a really good point where we put so much emphasis on running through all these special tests and different things like that. But really, because of the sensitivity and specificity of, of these tests and the potential for false positives and false negatives, the more objective tests you do, a lot of the times can actually further and further cloud what's actually happening because you're just <laughs> putting yourself yeah. into more and more chances of either missing things or, or having things created. And I think that when we're using special tests and overusing them, it's, it's, I remember doing this when I was young, you're just like, you're trying to look for that problem, that thing that comes up with a positive test so that you can be like, oh, there's a diagnosis. Whereas I find as my subjective histories have gotten longer, my understanding of what's going on is just so clear by the time I'm moving on to the objective things that what I'm really looking for at that point is like, is there something that shows me that I'm way off base? Because mm. like, this is starting to paint a really clear picture for me. So am I going to do something and get them to move around? And they're like, oh, that's like totally not presenting the way I would have thought it would based on what you're talking about. So I actually think there can be so much clarity, even from a more acute or subacute, not even needing to go into complex like biopsychosocial stuff with subjective history. I think it can even bring a lot of clarity to some of the general orthopedics. I think it's so interesting what you say about all these special tests too, because we tend to load people up with so many diagnoses. So by the time somebody gets to you, they may have heard that they had a torn labrum or a torn rotator cuff or a strained bicep or whatever. They have so many diagnoses and maybe all of those special tests were positive, but it doesn't necessarily explain their pain. And so then they come and they've had all these conflicting diagnoses. They're confused. Mm -hmm. Nobody's been able to figure out what's going on with them. And then they lose trust in their medical providers, makes them feel more isolated and alone. And so I think there's a big danger to special tests and also imaging. That's my soapbox too, is that I, I don't think that imaging is harmless. I think a lot of us, we want that quick answer. And so we're very quick to say, oh, well, why don't you just get an x-ray? Why don't you just get an MRI? But the risk of that is that person's going to get more potentially false positive explanations for their pain and then feel worse and worse about the state of their body and feel like they're falling apart. And that's a pretty yeah. dangerous place to live, in my opinion. To further onto the imaging part too, I really don't like, and maybe it's different in different healthcare systems. I'm not sure how it is for you guys in the States. I'd imagine it's pretty similar, but I really don't like the interpretations that people get sent home with because they get oh. the technical. <laughs> yep. And I feel like all that should just be deleted and leave a clinical impression, if you want, that's just typed up a sentence or two, generalizing what you're seeing about the findings rather than this list because sometimes too they get like a two-page list and then you look at the impression and it's like, yeah it's all pretty normal there's this one thing i'm concerned about but then they've gotten this booklet of mm -hmm. facet joints narrowing at l1 and then disdegeneration at whatever and then it, when you go to their compression even if it's somebody who's not bringing flags on all that stuff they're still giving it all to the client now they feel like they've got this booklet of issues even if mm -hmm. the impression says i'm not too worried about this so I feel like, what do people need? They probably don't need that. It's hard because, you know, you want to give people the full picture. And I, I think it's important for people to be informed about their health care. But then at the same time, there's that aspect of how much information is too much, especially when the person doesn't have the tools to interpret what it means. And so that's a tough line to walk. I struggle with that myself yeah. in being a new grad and navigating how much do I share with them and how much sharing is actually harmful. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's tough. And... I think whenever I have people going for imaging and stuff, I always, again, the same thing that we were talking about too, how a lot of this education can be used on non-chronic pain clients. I'll tell everybody about the brief history of imaging and how basically we only did imaging on people who showed up with pain, right? So you're getting one type of control or type of person and it's always people who hurt. And then you're going to images looking for solutions. So anything that's on there is now you just like relay that back to the pain that they came in with. But recently they start doing these studies where they just take hundreds of people, pain, no pain, send everybody for x-rays and MRIs and all these things. And then when you compare the people in pain's imaging to people who don't have pain, they're the same thing. 
And we start to realize that we've only been looking at one population. It's people who hurt. So we just blamed everything on these images. But when you start to incorporate people who aren't having pain, radiologists can't tell the difference between which one hurts and which one doesn't based on the image when they're blind to the, the control of the study on people having pain and not having pain. And so I always just tell people, you're going to go in, they're probably going to find something on the image. And just know that the purpose of MRIs and x-rays is really to rule out sinister problems, breaks, very serious tissue damage. But otherwise, we all have tears, we all have arthritis, we all have all these little things in our joints. So that doesn't necessarily mean that's where pain is coming from. And I always invite them after you get the x-ray, let's chat about it next time. And we can go through that because I, I think you can include whatever information that you want on those extra reports. But if you're not willing to sit down and take the time to bring clarity and understanding to what is on that sheet, then it shouldn't be there because that's when it becomes very harmful. And especially if you're trying to say you're normal, like yeah. people do not speak the language on here. It's foreign to them. So I, I love what you're saying about let's send them home with something because we have to. They had an image. They want to know what was on there. Mm -hmm. So we have to tell them something. But what if we even put it in layman's terms? How crazy that we're taught in school, you have to speak in layman's terminology, and then they get sent home with a fully medical clinical impression that I sometimes have to Google things and be like, what yeah. are they referring to? Mm -hmm. And I'm a healthcare provider, right? So I yeah, mean- it's crazy. Yeah. And I think if you want to highlight the ways that it can harm Everything we've been talking about in stress and all these environmental and contextual factors and how that can play into how much or how little pain you get and how likely or unlikely you are to go down a persistent pain path. Stress comes from uncertainty, a lack of information and a loss of control. And in my mind, those three things describe the usual process of getting a diagnostic image, right? Uh, you get less right. with uncertainty, less with a lack of information, and you feel like you're out of control, right? You, yeah. Especially if you're getting a, a diagnosis of something like arthritis or something like, oh, you have pain, but all we can see is normal changes to your body. So that basically means you have something that you're going to live with forever, and that's the cause of your pain. And, and that's the impression that a lot of people get left with, I think, is that when you say that their pain is related to uh, normal age-related change, what you're actually telling people is they're going to have pain for the rest of their life, right? There's nothing you can do about it. And you're not totally. giving people, you're not having that conversation about how pain can be happening as a separate thing to what's going on with your tissues. And when you just relate pain and arthritis, especially, is such a bad one where everybody knows that arthritis is something that you're going to get or they think you, know, you get a titanium knee later in life is the way that you get rid of arthritis. So everybody understands that arthritis is part of aging and something that everybody most likely gets at some time, but they don't understand that it doesn't mean that you're going to have pain. I think a lot of people see arthritis as a bit of a age-related death sentence in terms of doing physical activity and things that you enjoy. And yeah, I think those conversations need to be had. If you're going to get an x-ray and say, these are normal changes, but you're in pain, we need to say, these are normal things we expect, but there's no guarantee or, or specific reason why pain should be coming from those. And, and pain is this completely separate system. So we can do things to manage and relieve pain, even if arthritis never goes away because they're not necessarily linked together. Somewhat related question. I have a lot of patients who have experienced persistent pain and they really are seeking a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so if I try to frame these things in this framework of your imaging doesn't necessarily mean that your pain is caused by this herniated disc in your back or this arthritis in your hip. It's not a satisfying answer to them. Mm -hmm. And that's where I struggle because I want to give them this less biomechanical explanation of their pain and I want to open that conversation. But they're so focused on nobody's been able to diagnose me. I want a diagnosis. I want a diagnosis that that's the challenge that I run into. And I'm curious how you handle that thought pattern and that type of patient who is really seeking some answers from you. It's tough. I just had somebody like that not that long ago, actually. And I'm sure I will again. And uh, generally, if I'm seeing people, I don't give them a diagnosis unless they beg for it in acute situations and stuff like that. Diagnosis hardly ever comes out of my mouth. It might be in my note, but unless they're specifically asking for a diagnosis, I'll maybe put a label with a asterisk. But yeah, some people just 
especially the longer they go in the system, the way it traditionally comes through is they get these diagnoses. And that is very rooted in the traditional attitudes and beliefs about pain is it's coming from this physical thing. So even if there is a lack of evidence of a physical problem, that doesn't mean that their belief hasn't changed that they're waiting for somebody to find a physical problem and nobody's just found it yet. So when we start to suggest an alternative that is more related to the pain response system, I think a lot of cognitive dissonance starts to happen where we're actually challenging a belief. Even if we're not challenging a diagnosis because they don't have one, we are still challenging a belief. So there's going to be a lot of doubling down on what they believe when we first bring that up. So I try to say central sensitization is your diagnosis, right? That is the physical thing that's happening. And what's happening is an overreaction by your central nervous system to stimulus that shouldn't be causing you pain. So you're getting this very real pain and it's happening because of this very real physiological, biological thing. And if I'm not going to say if you're looking for a diagnosis, but, but I try to spin that as the diagnosis. And the tough mm. part is it takes lots of repetition. And I find a lot of times people get it in the moment. And then you come back for an appointment next week and they're like, oh, my doctor still said they can't find out what's wrong with me. And I'm like, I, that makes sense because we talked about what's going on. Yep. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. So a lot of repetition has to happen. And, yeah. and a lot of times it'll really make sense in the moment. But at the end of the day, people are most of the time still going to be looking, I think, for that. But what if this new test that I'm going for does show something, right? Yeah. It's a lot easier right. to grasp that concept of something just being positive and physically wrong than it is to have this sort of invisible system making things hurt. Yeah. So it's challenging. That is so hard. The patient that I'm thinking of, we have a pretty good give and take, good rapport, and I've been seeing her for a while. And I asked her the question the other day, what if you never got a diagnosis, but you found something that helped you feel better? How would you feel about that? That's great. That's a great question. What if you never, ever got the reason why, but you figured out something that helped? And I could tell that it actually was a bothersome thing to think about because she wanted mm -hmm. answer. She was like, I would always wonder if it would come back. I would always wonder what it was. And so it wasn't satisfying to her to just live a life without pain. She needed to know why. Mm -hmm. So that's a tough thing. I, I still grapple with that. I love the emphasis here on repetition because I think that oftentimes with our chronic pain talks, we think about it as like a one and done. That's how it's taught to us in schools. Like, yeah. I just give them the chronic pain talk. We're going to change their attitude. And it is such a revisiting, revisiting, revisiting constantly. It's a process and not a one-time talk. And now that you've planted that seed, I'm really curious how it starts to pick away at her because yeah. you really challenged her. So I could see how in the moment she was bothered by it, but you're also planting the seed that there's hope. And I think sometimes there's, I have a few thoughts about this. So if I'm all over the place, <laughs> correct me guys. But my first thought is without a diagnosis, there's no hope. There's no understanding of risk management. And I think some people really need that more than others. They need to know we follow a stepwise pattern. We get the diagnosis. We understand the risks. Then we can talk about the treatments. Then we figure out which treatments work. And so they're left without structure. And I think if we can give them a structure, like Josh was saying, if we can give them a framework for understanding this, and then if we can give them the structure of what does coming out of this look like for people, maybe with a case example, maybe by relating it to them, then I think we can get those people to feel more comfortable. But where I have failed is certainly trying to give that talk and then being like, okay, duh, now you should believe in PT and we should just do the thing. <laughs> and I haven't actually given them a sense of hope or structure. And the other one is a sense maybe of what they can do to affect change. They already feel powerless and they've been taught by the medical system that they are powerless, that someone else holds the answers to their body. And I think patients try to grapple with this when they're in persistent pain. I think they don't want to believe that, but they have all these experiences which keep giving them this message. And sometimes us giving them the permission to say, you live in your body. Why don't we focus on what you're experiencing in your body and how we can change that rather than waiting for these tests to guide our results because these tests are 
not giving us usable info and why don't we listen to your body? Why don't we go slow or challenge you or whatever it is? And recently a patient told me that was the most important thing that I have said to them was you live in your body. I trust you to tell me what's going on that you feel. And then I'm going to take that seriously. I'm going to listen to you and then share some structure for what we might do. And he was like, that was the best thing because I've seen a lot of providers, done a lot of things, had the tests and um, telling him also that he wasn't fragile mm-hmm. in the case of pain, yeah. like you are not fragile. Thing. That's the message everybody gets is that they're fragile, right? So exactly like you said, at a certain age, we just start losing muscle mass and bone density. And that's not even true anymore. We know it's when you stop moving, you start losing muscle mass and bone density and stuff like that. But you can keep building that late in life if you're still doing the things. And we have painted this picture to people that we're just a clock that's like ticking away that only has a certain counting down yeah you know and then you hit 30 it's a free pass to live a life with functional difficulty and pain because it's just part of it like i'm just getting old i'm hurting everything Mm. hurts everything aches everything is whatever because humans are fragile and aging is happening and And not that people want to do that, but I think that's the message that gets put out there. So like you said, giving people understanding and permission to feel like the resilient humans that they are. That's really when the shift, I think, starts to happen. And like you're saying, one of the really tough things about challenging those beliefs of people is I would say 80% of the drastic changes happen once someone's beliefs change. It's really hard to get significant change in pain as long as people remain in that traditional mechanical view because like you Mm -hmm. said as long as you're still in that the hope is very low or you're half into this new thing but you're still waiting for the real problem to surface and it's without a doubt every time once people are like yep i get this that makes sense what are we doing i'm in that's when you really start to get really significant progress with people's function and attitudes and happiness, frankly. And I think Sammy's question, I'm I'm still in love with that question because I don't know, Sammy, whether she will respond and change when you work with her. But I feel like that's one of those questions that is going to stay with her for a while. And if she's willing to entertain that possibility, if she can just for a moment visualize what life could be like without a diagnosis, but feeling better, that could be a game changer for her, whether it's with you or whether it's with a provider later on, because sometimes people don't want to change their beliefs yet. (laughs) Sometimes we have the metaphors, the questions, and there's something about holding on to that pain that I don't know. Sometimes I haven't been able to crack that code. This makes me think about those stages of behavior change, their readiness to change. And I'm curious from your perspective, Josh, how do you know someone's ready to hear this? Yeah, I think it's tough. And like you said, the stages of change is something that I'm always thinking about when I'm working with people. I'll give you an example. So somebody who came in a couple of weeks ago to see me said I was like the fifth or sixth physio that they've seen. They've had pain for upwards of five years started off as an ankle injury from running a marathon but now it's just the whole right side of her body and when I did the interview with her I could tell me asking questions about environmental factors like stress and what's been going on in your life in the last few years since this is happening I felt like she was waiting for somebody to ask her those other things she wasn't really Mm -hmm. sure she even wanted to come to physio again she's done it five times and she was like lighting up a little bit by the fact that I wasn't just oh it hurts when you do this and this oh okay let's start giving you some balance exercises or whatever so in my mind I was like I can see her energy and her interest peaking when I start to ask about things unrelated to her ankle and so Our whole first day was basically pain science education for the assessment. And then I think I did a 15, maybe probably not even like maybe five, 10 minute, like quick check of her ankle objectively at the end. And I had really tremendous results with her afterwards because I think she felt so validated by wondering if there was something else going on, but having everybody bringing it back to the physical. And then on the other flip side to your question, when I start to ask those questions and 
and dive into that a little bit. And if I feel people shutting down, answers getting smaller, or a lot of times people will try and redirect me back towards, yeah, that's great. Like work's stressful and stuff, but my back hurts. I'm here for my back. So like then they'll be trying to redirect me to the mechanical Totally. Problem. And that is a big flag for me that we're nowhere near here. So in that situation, it's really good to have some resources to, I think, send people home with because you can play into the mechanical hand and do some hands-on stuff and have some conversation and plant some seeds while still catering to a lot of those biomechanical beliefs. But you can really let, you know, Netflix and YouTube and, and these other very approachable things when they're not paying whatever per hour to be physically there to get physically fixed, which is what they're looking for. I think they're a lot more receptive to taking time out of their own day to hear some of the concepts you have to talk about if you're still providing the service they're expecting. And then you can start to, you know, hey, I sent you that explain pain video last week. Did you get a chance to watch it? Yeah. Oh, what'd you think about it? What did you think about this part of the video where they talked about pain growing and not being related to tissues the longer it's been around. He's like, oh, that that sounds like me, actually. A lot I resonated with that. And you can start to get these seeds planted for you without having to do that lifting and, and then bring it back when you see them again. We would love to link some of those. So if you have any resources to share with listeners, anything that you send to patients frequently or find really helpful, we would love to get those and link them for everyone. Absolutely. I think we talked about this a little bit before too. I really hate, you know, you guys too, all the jargony brochure pamphlet style stuff like that. So I always yeah. try and find things that are, I wouldn't want to just go home and read a brochure over dinner. I want to watch Netflix. I want to listen to a podcast. I want to go on YouTube and watch an animated video or whatever. If I tell people to go home and watch a show on Netflix that's related to pain, they're like, yeah, I have a Netflix. I can <laughs> can watch Netflix tonight for my physio homework, sure. And yeah. it's, yeah, I find people are very receptive to those. And I'll definitely give you guys a link of a few things that I use. Awesome. That's so cool, Josh, that you're willing to meet them where they are and also not give up on planting the seeds. Because I think for me at times, I felt like if the chronic pain conversation isn't going well, then I'm resigned to this mechanical approach, which isn't really the way I practice anymore. And so that transition has been hard. But I love what you're saying. When their guard is down, when they're not paying mm -hmm. for the service and not full of expectations, then there's a higher likelihood of them listening. Because right now, it feels like you're trying to argue with what they believe. And anytime you tell someone they're wrong, their natural response is to be defensive and to say, no, I have real pain. Like, mm -hmm. cut with the bullshit. It's not in my head. I'm not sensitive. I am in pain. And you're like, okay, mm -hmm. noted. We'll not go there right now. So that is huge. I think that's a great way to go about it and not give up on what you know is important, but not force it on them either. Maybe they don't want to believe that and mm -hmm. maybe they can still improve to some capacity and we can't be the ones to rob them of that choice. Absolutely. And I, th I think there is a lot of environments where it's all or nothing, like you said, where it's you do this pain course and you get it or you chose not to buy into this thinking so you drop out and that's tough. But going back to the stages of change like you talked about, I, I really don't think you can get the success that people are wanting until they're in action stage wanting to to do that so if you can recognize that people aren't there then you've got to take that as also recognition that just forcing it there isn't going to to change that right you have to take people through those stages before you can come back to really doing that you'll see some people say if, if you're doing this pain thing no more modalities at all no more pain medication no more this no more that but i think that's great for people who are ready for it and then you're going to totally turn away people who are not at that stage and it leaves this middle group I, I think floundering a little bit who just need more time and so i try to as best as i can give people that time and space that they need we're challenging a lot of beliefs here and that's really hard and also not to mention the fact that they're dealing with a brain that is on overdrive and makes it harder to concentrate retain information memory and recall and stuff like that so their brain's working against them for absorbing simple too and yeah you just you, you got to be I, I think a little empathetic to that situation 
I'm curious what you feel is the role of psychology in referring to other providers in this whole picture. The issue that I run into frequently is that patients maybe recognize that they're stressed or they recognize that there's other things going on in their life that may be connected to how they feel about their pain. But I don't find that there's often a collaboration between me as the PT and then their mental health provider, mm-hmm. and they're not getting similar messaging. Maybe they're not even talking about their pain in their psychology appointment. And then additionally, it's hard because oftentimes in PT, we're the ones challenging them with the thing that they're most afraid of in the moment. It's like this real-time challenging of their physicality, of their pain, of the thing that they're actually coming in for. So sometimes that fear isn't elicited in their psychology session. And so we're left to dealing with this psychological aspect that could be beneficial for them to work with a counselor on, but the counselor's not really seeing that part of it. It's a challenge. I'm curious to hear your Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have... uh perfect answer it is it's tough it's really tough especially because like you said i i don't think there's a lot of overlap in counseling and psychology and pain science there is overlap in in a functional connection but not in terms of a treatment intervention i find you're probably not going to get a lot of that pain conversation there you're probably going to be trying to fill a lot of gaps between what was talked about there in your physio sessions and bringing that all together. And I, I run into this situation a lot where you recommend counseling and the importance of it. And there, unfortunately, is still a bit of a stigma around getting treatment for mental health. So a lot of times people will say no, but then they'll talk about all that stuff with me. And then you're in the situation where you don't feel fully equipped to be able to help them with mm-hmm. maybe some trauma or something like that that they've been through, but they don't feel safe necessarily talking to somebody else. So anyways... The short answer is there's a couple things that work really well for pain in terms of specific interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy and I'm drawing a blank on the name of the other one now. It starts with an A. Affirmation therapy. Yeah, there we go. Thanks. So if you have any providers that are doing those interventions, you can know that is going to be something that's going to be helping and supporting the outcomes that you're looking to get. And then I think the other part is too, it doesn't always have to have complete overlap because somebody could go through counseling and resolve and manage all those, let's call it stressful generators of pain, but still have feelings of threat and not feeling safe with the movement side of things. So sometimes I think they can be dealt with very separately, but still in that actually come together really well because you need the physical movement graded exposure side of things. But that's all just going to work much better if you generally feel safe within your own body. And those events Mm -hmm. don't always have to overlap to work together. Yeah. And you can look for pain psychologists for Mm -hmm. our listeners. There's not as many of them out there, it seems. I didn't realize that psychologists and counselors don't get a lot of pain training, but now I'm seeing that they don't. So my expectation needs to change. But I can also ask the patient to maybe talk about pain with their counselor or therapist and see what that person relays. And that's not a perfect system. I I think ideally we would all be able to get together. If a patient was seeing Mm -hmm. a orthopedic surgeon and a PT and a counselor and a PCP, couldn't we all get together in rounds and say, okay, I'm going to give them this treatment acutely to help reduce their pain, but that's because we want PT to be able to work with them more. And then psych is going to handle these types of conversations because we don't know how to help them manage work stress and interpersonal dynamics and Unfortunately, we are lacking that type of communication for the most part. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think one of the hard nuances, again, is being able to identify how all those things come up in the presentation of the person in front of you. Because a lot of the time, if there is any hesitation for pursuing counseling or if there's any hesitation around any of the concepts that you talk about, if you can identify where those hesitations or gaps are, There's lots of ways I think you can bring it into the session and kind of flag. Oh, we talked about how emotions and stress and and mood can be really influential in your pain. And you said you you had this traumatic thing that happened to you. And I know you weren't sure if you should go talk to somebody about that. But I know when you're doing this movement, you're telling me you feel very nervous. 
why do you feel nervous? And then you can sometimes get into very emotional or stressful information for people when they're doing things like movement or objective tests or whatever. And you can be like, ah, see, there's emotions coming up again. You're feeling nervous when you're doing this. You're feeling scared. You're feeling unsafe or whatever. And then there's lots of ways you can get that safety from these other services. And there's ways that we can help, I think, manage emotions. We don't have to be the ones to fix emotion, but we can sit with our patients' discomfort and teach them to slow down and to breathe and to not trigger sympathetic overload whenever they're moving. And sometimes we're like therapists and sometimes the therapists are telling people to move and exercise. I, I had a counselor who was like, you need to go for a 20 minute walk five days a week. It is part of your therapy. You have to do that. I was like, huh. Okay. <laughs> Here's my therapist <laughs> telling me that I need to sweat for 20 minutes minimum. Yeah. So there's probably a lot of overlap that sometimes we don't realize. And I'm excited to see how the field is going to keep evolving. So I think that there's going to be this new wave of clinical practice where PTs are more equipped, psychologically informed PTs, mm-hmm. and then therapists can become more equipped on the fact that you have to move. You can't just talk about being safe in your body. You have to actually go do the thing. And so maybe they feel more equipped to handle some of that as well. And and again, we can keep working together. So Josh, this has been an awesome conversation about pain, preventative pain science. Thank you for your metaphors. We want to get into our lightning round at this point. So not pain-related questions, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So, Josh, what is your favorite drink at the moment? My favorite drink? Um, Well, I've been making a grapefruit liqueur gin cocktail recently with some bitters that my wife got me for Christmas, and it has been very tasty. Excellent. What's your recipe? (laughs) So it's like grapefruit liqueur, a little bit of lemon juice, an ounce and a half of gin, and then four dashes of grapefruit and hops. A common theme among our guests is that they love to make their own fancy cocktails at home. You're like the fourth one to give us a recipe. We're going to need like a conscious clinician cocktail book. (laughs) I was hoping it would be some sort of cocktail because I was like, I'm going to get another recipe out of this. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Yeah, the conscious clinician cocktail book. Like no one expected it, but it came out of the project. Okay, so what is the best book you've read lately? Ah, best book I've read lately. I've been pretty deeply engrossed in the Dark Tower Stephen King series. I have a weird like horror addiction sometimes with novels, not really in any other form of media. But yeah, and they're, they're, I'm on like the fourth one now. My husband loves those. Yeah, they're yeah. so good. Yeah, I never, they're super old, but I never read them. Some of those things were everybody read Lord of the Rings, everybody read Harry Potter. And then I feel like there's this eight book series that I don't know. I feel like I missed the boat on big time. So, yeah. Awesome. Very cool. So what is the first thing you do in a challenging situation? Just like any kind of challenging situation? Yes. Probably breathe. (laughs) Deep breathing. (laughs) When you go through school and you learn about deep breathing and stuff, I remember I used to blanketly suggest that to other people and never do it myself (laughs) so much. But in the last few years, yeah, I just, I feel like everything becomes easier after you can center yourself and for everybody that might not be deep breathing but for me just doing a few big deep breaths can really make me feel like i'm back in control agreed if you weren't a pt or a physio i should say what would you do for work i'd love to say contractor just because i have this dream of renovating homes with me and my wife and just flipping them maybe it's because we watch too much hgtv i don't know (laughs) i'd I'd like to believe i'd be good at that (laughs) that's awesome i have been remodeling a house and i spent all of my saturday yesterday mudding drywall so i I can understand that it's been fun and very tiring yeah All right, Josh, how do you define being a conscious clinician? That's a good question. I think one thing that's really changed for me since deciding to dedicate my time and energy towards going down this persistent pain path is I think I thought I could do a good job of it before, but I think to really be a conscious clinician, like you said, to be available for other people in 
the way that they might need. I think you can only go as deep with someone as you've gone with yourself. So I think one of the best things I ever did for my practice and improving on biopsychosocial things and empathy and support is to seek out my own supports and to do a lot of self-reflection and a lot of self-work and growth. And yeah, I think that taking care of yourself and, and understanding yourself is how you can really become a conscious clinician. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. We appreciate your time. We look forward to sharing all the resources that you've mentioned. If people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? I'm on Instagram at chronic pain physio. If you just want to see some of the stuff I talk about, that's probably the thing that's been around the longest for me. So there's lots of posts on there. If you want to get in contact with me on my website, chronicpainphysio.ca, there's a contact page and I try to be pretty responsive on the emails there. Or you can just josh at chronicpainphysio.ca is the email that it goes to. So you can just directly email me if you want. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. This was awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me guys. This is great. I really enjoyed it. Stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at the conscious clinician and Facebook backslash the conscious clinician links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.